I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 again this morning. Uh, We started this chapter last Sunday as we continue to make our way through uh, this wonderful book of the Bible. And we're going to uh, start here in just a moment in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And we're going to just try to work through one paragraph today. Uh, If you're not with us, typically our normal routine as a church is we start at the beginning of a book of the Bible and work our way through. Uh, We make some exceptions, like two Sundays from now is Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. We're going to step out of Hebrews for one Sunday, and Pastor Larry is graciously going to preach for us uh, that Sunday, but typically we just stick into uh, a single book of the Bible and see uh, everything that we can wring out of it possible uh, to to dive into, and so we're going to continue that endeavor today. But as we uh, draw our attention to this paragraph, I was thinking of the common human experience that I'm guessing most of us have had, where you're at a certain place, or you're in a certain event maybe, and you have this thought... I never want to leave. Like maybe you're on a vacation, maybe some of you have uh, had this experience in the past or you're planning something ahead this spring or summer and you're sitting on a beach somewhere or something where it's just peaceful and calm and you think, man, I wish I never had to leave. Uh, This feels like heaven to me. Uh, I've had experiences like that at different points in my life, uh, just wishing I could stay in that moment or wishing that I could stay in that place uh, with those people. Uh, But ultimately, even that longing evaporates, right? We end up having to leave the, the concert ends or the vacations up or the next people who are going to be staying in the Airbnb show up or whatever. Like we have to leave. We have to move on to the next thing. Maybe time runs out, money runs out. Uh, but in today's text, we're going to see that we as Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, we have been granted access to the greatest place of all. Uh, this place that we should never, ever, ever want to leave, uh, the place of heaven itself. And unlike all of our earthly experiences where we eventually do have to leave, when we've been granted access to heaven, entrance into heaven, we never have to leave. Uh, But we're going to see the responsibility in this text that we have with each other and toward each other to help each other stay. Uh, that we, we've been granted access, we've been granted entrance to this glorious, no better place, uh, but we have a responsibility and opportunity to help each other stay. And so I want to uh, review real quickly where we're at in this letter as we come to this paragraph. If you haven't been with us, the, the book of Hebrews was a letter written to early Christians uh, who ethnically were Jewish. They had grown up uh, under the Jewish law, learning the, what we call the Old Testament, the law, and hearing the prophets read, following the practices of of God that he had given to his people, but now they have come to faith in Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, has been crucified and been raised from the dead, and these Jewish brothers and sisters have heard this, and their hearts have been changed. They've believed upon him, but now they're starting to face this temptation to go back, to, or to add back in, maybe, if we want to think of it that way, the Old Testament practices, the, the sacrifices, the going to the Levitical priests, things like that. And what's immediately preceded this, so the last couple of chapters of this letter has been this author, we don't know who it was, but this author making a really extended argument, a pretty intricate argument, the last few chapters, about the superiority of Jesus and the, the covenant that he has established over all that have preceded it. And so he he argued in chapter 7 to these ethnic Jews that Jesus was a better priest than any priest they had ever had before. That he was a priest more like this man named Melchizedek in the Old Testament than like Levi. Uh, He has argued in chapter 8 that Jesus established a better covenant than the Old Covenant. Uh, That Jesus had established a covenant and arrangement with God where forgiveness of sins has actually been granted. 
Not just promised in the future, but been granted in the present. And in chapter 9, and even into our current chapter, he had argued, this author had argued, that Jesus had provided a better sacrifice. A better sacrifice than a bull or goat or lamb that had ever been offered. And that in doing that, offering that better sacrifice, Jesus had brought his people into a better place. Uh, that he didn't just get them access into some tent or to some building or some special room here on earth, but that he had gained us, his people, access into heaven itself. That's what he's been arguing. He's been uh, concluding last Sunday in the text really immediately before this one, uh, that they no longer as Jews, now that that sacrifice has been made and that priest has come and that place has been gained, they no longer need to offer animal sacrifices and that it's even inappropriate to do so. That's what he's been arguing. And this is going to be a pivot point in the letter. Uh, the Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19, this paragraph is going to be like a pivot point in the letter because he's been making this really elaborate argument for quite some time, for a few chapters even. But now he's going to shift and talk more practically, give more instruction, give more directions uh, to these early Jewish Christians. It's like he's gonna it's like he's gonna take a deep breath, having made this long argument, kind of catch his breath and pivot and start to give exhortation. That's what he's gonna start to do. And I, I find this important as a pivot point because sometimes there's some of us who just love doctrine. Like we love talking theology, we love hashing out all this theology and practice, and that is wonderful. The, the Bible is chock full of it. Um, but that theology, that doctrine that we're taught, even thick ones that we're taught in the scriptures is always intended to turn into exhortation, to turn, it's supposed to affect how we actually live, like what we do, what we don't do, how we treat people, how we see the world, how we see our problems. Ideas should always give way to instructions, right? That they lead into instructions. Doctrine should always lead to devotion. Uh, that those things are, should flow from the rich theology that we're taught. And so this is like a pivot point in the letter where he starts to turn and give more directions to the people of God, more exhortations. So I'm going to read this for us, this paragraph, verses 19 to 25, then we'll walk back through it uh, to see what the Holy Spirit may have to say to us as a gathered church today uh, through this text written long ago. And so the unknown author of the book of Hebrews continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize the message of this paragraph and what I want to communicate to you, to us, uh, this way this morning. And this is an oversimplified statement, but you'll see as we flesh it out what I mean. I want to summarize it this way, that God lets us enter, let's help each other stay. God lets us enter, 
let's help each other stay. Uh, so we've been granted access to this best of all places and this best of all person, but we have a responsibility to help each other stay there, uh, to not flake off, to not leave. We have a responsibility to help each other stay in this place that God has granted us entrance to. And so I want to begin with the first couple of verses, the first three verses, 19 to 21, under this simple heading that God lets, God lets us Enter. And so notice the logic of this par- paragraph. There's like a, a cohesiveness to this whole paragraph. It all hangs together. He starts in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since. And then he adds some statements. So he, he's, he's drawing on what he's already been telling them. Therefore, since what I just said, uh, all these things I've been telling you, uh, since those things are true, then he drops down verse 22, says, let us do this. Since these things, let us do this. And so he's going to tell them, let us do three different things. Let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. But the reason that we should be doing that, the reason we can be doing that, is what he's been telling us the previous paragraphs. And so in a nice little concise way, he summarizes in those first three verses what God lets us do, where God lets us go. Okay, and so I, w- I want to review that. It's like these first three verses are a summary of the previous three chapters, if you want to think of it that way. And he starts by this little summary by saying this, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. When he talks about the holy places here, in this place that we are allowed to go, he is not talking about the temple he is not talking about the tabernacle that had, had long ago given way to the temple and the building there in Jerusalem. The temple was still there. It, it was still up as best as we know. Uh, but he's not saying we have confidence to enter that place behind that curtain to go into that room there inside Jerusalem. Now what he is saying when he says we have confidence to enter the holy places is he's saying we are able to enter into heaven itself. Like we are able to enter into holy places of heaven. And he's made this argument earlier in the letter about how the tabernacle, that tent where God had taken up residence and it became the temple eventually where God lived. He said a few different times that those buildings or that tent was like a shadow or like a copy of the real thing. And the real thing was heaven itself. And so that when he says we enter the holy places, uh, we are talking about heaven itself. But even in that copy, even in the tabernacle and in the temple where there's that room where God dwelled, entrance into that room was highly restricted, right? That's an understatement. Like you could, nobody could just walk in there however they saw fit. There was a a large curtain that was like a keep out sign. I've read a kid's book that said it was like a keep out sign uh, for God's people. There's a curtain there and the only a single priest could enter. And only in the times and ways that God had prescribed. And each time that they were going to enter through that curtain into that that holy place there on earth, a sacrifice had to be made. A blood sacrifice had to be made if that, that man was going to enter into the presence of God. And by making that little copy on earth and giving those rules and guidelines around it, God was trying to show his people something, right? He was trying to show them that entrance into the real place required a sacrifice, required a fitting sacrifice. If any sinner was going to come into the presence of God in heaven, a fitting sacrifice had to be made. 
And when that, in that copy, in the tabernacle, in the temple, when people tried to go in there, if people tried to go in there just however they saw fit, they would not go in there, right? Like God would strike them dead. Like there were people struck dead because they tried to offer sacrifices how they saw fit. This was nothing to trifle with, this going into the holy place here on earth. And if that was true of the copy, like the simulator, if you want to think of it, that if that was true of that, where people were struck dead, how much more true is it that, as we think about entrance into heaven itself? Like, we cannot just trifle with that and just think, I can just go in whenever I want, however I want, into the presence of God. That is not true. And so for this author to say, starting out here, we have confidence to enter the holy places, confidence to enter heaven. I want you to think of how wild of a claim that is, that we have access to heaven, that we can confidently enter into heaven. He tells us the way that that's possible. He tells us the way we can have confidence, we can have boldness even, to come into heaven itself. And he says it's because Jesus has opened what he calls a new and living way for us in verse 20, right? A new and living way has been opened for us So Jesus, as our priest, has offered a sacrifice that actually worked. That's the sacrifice of himself, the sacrifice of his own flesh, verse 20 says, right? That's what happened at the cross, that Jesus had our sins laid upon him and he was crushed so that we might be forgiven. And now Jesus, as that priest for us, has just like those priests did in the copy in the shadow, he's now gone into the holy places of heaven. He's gone there on our behalf, and he's been raised from the dead, and he's entered into that place. And we can enter into the holy places only because Christ has entered there, right? We don't get to just enter on our own. We don't just get to enter in however we see fit. We can enter because Christ has entered, and he has sacrificed himself in our place. So this way has been opened, but he says that this way has been opened. Verse 20, hear this. For us, people like us, sinners like us, sinners like you and like me, Jesus has opened a way for us, little us, sinful us, to be able to enter into the heavens, enter into God's presence itself. I want you to marvel at that, that a way has been opened for us. Like a way has been opened for me, for you, if you will receive Christ as your Savior. We are not just these like unknown strangers who would otherwise be forbidden access to God. We are rebels against God. Like we, we are not neutral towards God. We deserve to be kicked out of heaven. We deserve to be forbidden entrance into heaven. Yet God looks at us and because of the sacrifice of Christ, he has opened a way for even us to enter into the holy places. And we can do it confidently. Think about that. Like we can confidently enter into heaven. We can confidently enter into the holy places. Uh, This is not a trick or a trap from God where he like opens a door and there's a trap door on the other side. If we, he has opened a way for us and sincerely offers entrance to us if we will believe upon his son. If we will turn from our sins, he offers entrance to us. A way has been opened for us. So he reviews that in these first three verses, 19, 20, 21, uh, that a way has been opened for us by Christ. By, we have a priest there in heaven, and by his merits, by his sacrifice, we are actually able to enter into the holy places. 
But then he turns in these last several verses, starting in verse 22, and he says, let us do this, let us do that, let us do that. Because these things are true, because we've been given entrance, we've been let into heaven as God's people, let's do these things to help each other stay. Okay? And so look at if you, verses 22, 23, 24. If you put your eyes on those, they should all start in your copy of Scripture. Let us, let us, and let us. Right? There, there's three parallel things he's saying. Let us do these things with each other, for each other. And so I want to briefly look at each of those and, and see the relevance that they have for us today. And so the first one that he says in verse 22 is let us draw near. Let us draw near. I want you to, to hear this, that, that we cannot, st- this is stating the obvious, but I, I must say it. We cannot stay in a place we have not entered, right? Like we cannot stay somewhere if we've never actually entered there. We're going to talk about helping each other stay, but first we have to enter. First we actually have to go in. First we have to actually approach And there are some of you in this room this morning who are not yet in the heavenly places with God. Like you have not yet walked through that door into the heavenly places to fellowship with the Father, to to union with his Son. You haven't yet walked through that door by faith. But I want you to, to hear this. Like because a door has been opened doesn't mean that you have gone through it right? Like those doors, uh, the outside doors of our building were open this morning. We would have let anybody in here, right? But there's many people who didn't come. They were open, but people did not come. And so a door does no good just by the, the fact of it being open, right? It must actually be used. Its openness must be actually utilized. And so I want to call upon you in this room this morning, who maybe you have heard since you were a baby, that the doors of heaven are open to all who will believe upon Christ. You could explain that to me full well, that Jesus died for sinners like me, he was raised from the dead, I believe all that, yada, it's just like yada, yada, yada to you. You know the facts of it, you could explain to me how the doors are open, but you have not yet walked through it. Like it's an idea to you. It's a concept to you. It's just a truth to you. This text is not just a truth. He doesn't just say, believe the way's been opened. He says to enter it. Like to actually enter into God's presence, enter into God's favor. And the way that you do that, if you're wondering, how do I do that? Like, what, what is that? I can't physically walk into heaven right now. How do I actually enter? How do I actually approach God? This text tells you, right? It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of what? Of faith. The way that we enter into the heavenly places, the way that we are reconciled to God, that we're allowed back into his presence as an individual person is by faith. It's not, we don't walk into heaven by just cleaning up our act, by by starting to live morally and I'm just gonna kind of inch my way through the doorway here and try to, to clean myself up. The way we enter is as sinful people, presently sinful people, but who see that in heaven there is a priest who has been crucified for me and raised from the dead, and he's in there. And I am going in on his merit. Like, I am walking in there confidently, not skittish and not fearful of what God going to strike me down, but the way I walk in there confidently is by faith that Jesus actually died for me. 
that my sin was dealt with already at the cross and that God approves of him and Jesus says I can come to him and if I plead him and what he's done for me, the Father will accept me too. That is faith. It's not a faith and confidence in your own moral purity and your own goodness. It's a confidence in the sacrifice of Jesus and the acceptance that he has with God the Father. That is how you actually walk into the door. That is how you actually come near. That is how you draw near to God. And he is the one, using the language of this text, 22, Christ is the one who will sprinkle you clean. He is the one who will wash you. you. You don't stay outside of heaven and clean your clothes up and get your righteous clothes on of your own. You are given the righteousness of Jesus and then you walk in. Right? We, we, by faith, enter the doors. And hear me clearly, there is no sneaking in to heaven. There are no back doors. There are no side doors. The door into heaven, he says, is the flesh of Christ. It's the body of Christ. There is no other way for you to draw near to God other than how he tells you to draw near to him. You don't get to just approach him however you see fit. He tells you, he commands you to repent and believe in his son. And if you do, that door is, is yours to enter today, even this very day. And so you cannot stay in a place you haven't entered. And so today I would call upon everyone in the room, if you have not before, enter that holy place. Be received by God. But as much as you cannot stay in a place you haven't entered, I would also say, though, is that you won't stay in a place you haven't enjoyed. Like, you won't stay there. If we go somewhere and there's no delight and it feels lame to us, it feels boring to us, it feels like a burden to us, if we're in a place like that, we won't stay there. We stay places we enjoy, right? We stay in the company of people. We actually enjoy environments. We actually enjoy. And so in this let us draw near, I want to call upon all of us who long ago we drew near to Christ initially. We put our faith in him. We turned from our sin. I want to call upon us to continue to draw near to Jesus, to continue to draw near to God the Father, right? This text was written to people who already believed, right? It wasn't written to people who had no regard for Jesus. It was written to people who were already forgiven. And he's saying, let us draw near, let us keep drawing near again and again and again to God the Father. It's not like we have to walk back out of the room and get cleaned up again and then come back in. We're there already, but he's saying relationally, let us keep drawing near to God. Let us keep coming near to him, enjoying who he is. We should never as Christians ever just be content with getting in to heaven. Right? As if, well, I made it into the room, that's all that matters. Like when we think about entering into the heavenly places, entering into the holy places, do you know when we see records of people having visions of heaven or maybe them being caught up into heaven and they record what they see for us? There is nobody out on the fringes of that room or that space just being like, oh man, I wish I could be out there. Like the attention of everyone there is upon God. They are enraptured with him. They are swept up by who he is and how wonderful he is, how great he is. There is nobody who is bored there. There is nobody who is just wallflowers. They are all coming as near to God as they can. They are drawing near to him. And that is how we should be even as we operate on earth. We, right now, if we're united with Jesus, we are in the holy places. 
And we ought to continue to draw near to our God again and again and again, turn our attention to him again and again and again, and not just twiddle our thumbs on the edges of heaven, but be focusing again and again on our heavenly Father and who he is. We should not want heaven without God, right? We, we should not just be content with, well, I'm, I'm forgiven. I was able to flee from judgment. We don't just flee judgment, but we run to God. Like we, we actually draw near to him. That's what this text tells us. is isn't just flee the wrath to come, but it's draw near to God. And so fellow Christians, like continue at least Sunday by Sunday, and we'll talk about that here in a minute, at least Sunday by Sunday, draw near with God's people to him. Turn your attention to him. But we can do that day in and day out. We can do that any moment, any second of our life. We can draw near to God relationally again and again. Turn our attention to him. Be swept up in him again and again. And I would, I would encourage you how he says in verse 22, encourage you fellow Christians, to not let shame keep you away from him. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The enemy would love to accuse you, would love to point out sin in your life and think God doesn't want to spend time with you. He may be willing to forgive you, but he doesn't delight in you. Like, who do you think you are thinking you can draw near to him? God commands you to draw near to him. Like, he, he loves you. Like, he has forgiven you. He has thrown those into the sea without bottom or shore, right? The very things that Satan accuses you of and wants to keep you distant from God because of, God says, I know those things. Christ says, I died for those things. Like, you have been washed, you have been made clean. So even if you walked in here this morning feeling the shame of your sin, if you are united with Christ, draw near again to him and know he's glad to have you do so. Like he, he wants you to come to him. He wants you to confess. He loves you no less when you have sinned than when you have obeyed. But he wants you to come to him. He wants you to draw near to him in full assurance of faith. And know that he doesn't just let you draw near because you are good, but he lets you draw near because you're forgiven. So let us draw near to him. That is the first let's. The second one you see in verse 23. The next verse, there's this, again, let us fill in the blank. And what he says is, let us hold fast. Let it, and precisely says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. When he says to hold fast to our confession, what he's talking about, it, the confession is the, the doctrine that we believe, the things he's been telling them. Sometimes as a church, maybe sometimes too much, uh, but we use the shorthand of the gospel to talk about the confession of our faith, the, the simple truths, the core good news that we've been taught in the Bible about us, about God, about him sending a savior Jesus for us, him being crucified, raised from the dead, and someday returning, and the offer of forgiveness through him and his work. That is the confession that we are called to hold fast to. We're to hold on to it, he says. Let us hold fast to it, to the confession of our hope. But we face a temptation as Christians, and maybe some of you are feeling it presently, we face a temptation regularly to let go of it. Like to not hold fast to it, but the temptation is to let go of it, to slowly lose our grip upon it. And what he is saying is let us hold fast to it. And I, I think there's different reasons sometimes as we think of holding fast to this confession that we have. There's different reasons we may be tempted to let go of it. I think one of the reasons that we become kind of oblivious to is that we just slowly forget it. 
We just slowly, not that we forget the facts of it, but we slowly forget its importance. We slowly let it become part of the background of our mind, become part of the background of our life. How many times maybe in your own life or the lives of others have you seen like a red-hot Christianity and an experience of God's favor just slowly give way to this gradual passivity and coldness to the good news of Jesus. The, the same message that used to thrill your heart and melt your heart in contrition and thankfulness, now you hear it and you're like, yeah, you shoulder shrug. And we sing these glorious songs that we just sang and you have no gladness of heart as you do. Like there's, there's this passivity and coldness that can grow in our hearts. It can become background rather than foreground. And I think often it's less a just sudden, in the moment, like an outright rejection of the gospel. Like, I no longer believe this. I'm letting go of it. That is not often the experience of believers, but it's this slow, gradual release of it where it loses significance. It loses importance in our minds and hearts. But I think another way we can be tempted to let go of it and to not hold fast is that we start to hold fast to something else in addition to it. Where we start to, to do calculations maybe in our mind of, well, what if this isn't true? Like, what, what if this gospel that I've heard, this confession, maybe it's not true. I, I don't want to give it up. Like, I'm going to hold on to it with one hand. But what if these other ways people view the world is right? And what if there's maybe all, there, all this life is all there is or something like that? And I want to take my other hand and grab onto the things of this world or grab onto this other ideology. I want to grab onto it as well. We can start to set our attention and our hope, to use the language of verse 23, on something else, on some other person, on some other attainment, some other desire. We start to set our hope on those things. And it's like we have a split allegiance, like we're putting our hope in two different things. And we're saying, I'm not rejecting Christianity, but I really am starting to hope in these other things and set my heart upon those things. But I would say this, holding on to the confession of our hope takes two hands. It takes both hands. It is not a hope that we are to grab on with one hand and then use the other to grab onto some other hope. There is no other hope. Like we are called to grab forcefully, firmly onto the hope of the gospel with both hands. And he says the reason we can do that, the reason we can hold fast to this hope is because the one who promised is faithful. Like he has always kept his promises from the beginning and he will always keep his promises. And if he has said, all those who come to me in repentance and faith in my son, I will forgive, I will raise them up, I will establish a new earth where I will reign with them, they will be my people forever. If he has promised those things, they are true. They can be grabbed onto with both hands with confidence. And when we're tempted to grab onto something else or we're tempted to kind of let go of it slowly or suddenly this text calls us to grab back on, to say, I am not letting go of this. Like, I have been given this good news of Jesus that is a, 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 a bolstering of my soul. I have been given this hope to set my heart on. I am not going to let go of it. And I love that he says that we can do it because he who promised is faithful. Because as we're called to hold on to the gospel, the better news is that he holds on to us, right? Both must be true. Like we hold on to the gospel, but he holds on to us as we do. And his hold is much more important than ours, but ours is still important. We're called to do it, and we're even called to help each other do it, right? He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, right? 
without wavering. We, we do this together as the people of God. Let us hold the confession of our hope. I love that the author, whoever this author was, even included himself in that. Let us, like a person writing part of the Bible, knows that he would be prone to potentially let go of it, that he would be prone to potentially lose sight of it, let it become background. He's saying, let us, me, you, all of us Christians, hold fast to this together. And Christians, like we need to see other people holding fast to the confession of hope. It helps us to hold fast to the confession of our hope, right? Because when I'm tempted to let go of it and I'm doubting or I'm, I'm worried or I'm fearful about something, I start to let my grip go. Or if I start to just become enamored with things of the world and slowly start to, to lose my grip and let the gospel become less important to me, I need people. And you need people to say, brother, sister, grab back onto this thing. Like you cannot let it go. Like we have a hope that we can take to the eternal bank. Like let's continue on in our hope. Let's hold fast to this truth that has been taught us. We need people in our life to help us do that, to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And the final let us is in verse 24. He starts, but he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I, I appreciate this. That it, so this heading we'll call let's stir up. So let's draw near, let's hold fast, let's stir up. He says, let's uh, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We as Christians can eat, and this can be perplexing to us, but we can easily become stagnant in our faith and our obedience to God. Where what was up on the surface just slowly sinks down into the bottom of our life, we can become, the longer we are in the faith, the longer we have known Jesus, and this is a strange, ironic reality, but the longer we are in the faith, often the more our love and good works just settle to the bottom. Like what used to be very active and strong and very on the surface and everybody would see it, those things, even if they're at work, they're way down at the bottom of our life. They're not at the front anymore. We become cold in our love toward fellow Christians and toward God. We become lazy in our service of the world, in our service of the church. This can and does happen. It's probably happening in some of our lives right now whether we realize it or would acknowledge it or not. The, the, the love and good works have just settled down to the bottom of our life and we've become okay with that. But when that takes place in our life, the cure for that, the antidote to that, is not just in ourself. It's not self-help. It's not like telling myself, you know what, I need to love better and do more good works for people, right? It, this is not a solo project to just have these things resurface in our life. He, he didn't, he could have just said to them, let us love better and do more good works, right? He could have just given it as like a direct command, but he said, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, Right? That, that he's giving this command to us to look out for each other. To actually, when we see things settle down in someone, or when we see it in ourselves, to, to see a responsibility to help each other stir those things back up. To see them come back up to the surface as they are supposed to. And hear me in this, uh, and I will never discourage anyone from private spiritual disciplines. Those are very important. Uh, to spend time with the Lord individually, but private spiritual disciplines alone are not sufficient for this task. 
to be stirred up to love and good works. There, you need other people to do that in your life. That's how God has ordained things. He sometimes will touch down individually with us, and he is kind to do that. But the means he's given for us to see love and good works stirred back up in us isn't for us to just stir ourselves. It's to have somebody else do it for us, right? And for us to be that agitator in somebody else's life to say, I'm stirring these things back up. I'm at least trying to stir them back up in your life, brother or sister. We have a responsibility to each other to aid each other. And we, this is what I mean when I say we must help each other stay, right? Like Christ has gained us entrance into heaven, into the holy places, into being reconciled with God. And he does indeed, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying, he does indeed hold fast to us, and that's the most important thing. But he uses us to help each other stay, to help press on in faith, to help press on in obedience and delight in God. So we have a responsibility to stir each other up. And I, I would say this, the risk of saying the obvious, to do that, to stir each other up, we actually have to be present with each other, right? You can't stir up somebody you don't know. And they can't stir you up if you never are seen by them or heard by them, right? If we live in isolation, no stirring is happening right? Like we, we are called to be present with each other. That's why he says uh, that as we consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, one of the ways we do that is by, he says a negative, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. For us to actually stir each other up and help each other stay in the faith and stay obedient to our Lord, we actually have to meet together, we need to actually see each other and hear each other and talk to each other and hug each other. Like we, that is what we are called to do as God's people. And even in the ancient world, people had started to make a habit of not doing that. Like so anybody who tries to say a decline in church attendance is just this 2023 concern, that is hogwash. Like people have always been prone to stay away from the gathering of God's people. They, it, like live streams and stuff are just a unique way that we can be tempted to stay away from people or having in my individual private Bible that I can read is a temptation to stay away from the people of God that other uh, generations may not have had. But this has always been a temptation for God's people is to isolate and stay away from the gathering. But he says, do not neglect to meet together. Continue to meet together as fellow Christians. Come together uh, in worship. Come together in fellowship. And I don't know why people had started to make up reasons of why they wouldn't gather together in the ancient world. Maybe they were afraid for their life sometimes, right? There was opposition that would come. Maybe they, they were called to gather together on Sunday. Sunday now was not what Sunday was like then. Like, it wasn't part of a weekend, right? It was a work day like every other day, and maybe they needed to go be out in their fields or be in the marketplace or whatever, and they're like, I gotta do that. I can't be with y'all, sorry. They may have had their reasons. We may have our reasons that we're tempted to stay away to get uh, from the gathering today. But I want to call upon us to make the gathering of God's people a habit, right? If, if we can make it a habit to not meet together, we can make it a habit to meet together. God in his kindness at minimum gives us Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday as a, as a physical uh, expression of our unity, as, a, as an opportunity for us to come together in worship of God and to remember the things we may have forgotten during the course of the preceding week. And to remember and see other people holding fast to this gospel when I've been tempted to start to lose my grip, seeing other people hold fast to it and sing it out makes me want to grab back on, 
right? And so make it a habit to come and together with the people of God Sunday by Sunday. I think sometimes we think too often, and hear me in the right spirit on this, we think too often of my participation in a worship gathering as a private matter. Like, is this convenient for me this day, this week? Or is this inconvenient? Like, do I have something else going on? And we just think of it as a decision I am making and what's convenient or inconvenient for me. But when we remember that we are brothers and sisters, and when we remember the responsibility that we have to each other, if we stay away from the gathering again and again and again, that is not a matter of convenience, that is a matter of abandonment. Like, you are, you are not doing what God has commanded you to do to be around other Christians and help stir them up. And you are denying yourself a means of grace where others are going to stir you up. Like, so we must stop thinking of just my participation in the gathering of the church as optional, as an individual matter, but as a corporate matter that we do together to help stir each other up to love and good works. And think what you forfeit when you don't make a habit of gathering with the people of God. Like, what do you lose by not getting to, to hear people sing out the gospel? What do you lose by not hearing the prayers of the saints? What do you lose by not seeing that sister who's struggling so much you see her in tears crying out to God? That will help you grab on to the confession of our hope when you see other people doing it. And you are losing out yourself uh, if you do not gather with the people of God. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, even said this, and think if anybody outside of Christ could be a person who would have a sweetness of fellowship with God and could maybe feel an ability to, to kind of stay away from the gathering, it'd be somebody like him and his stature. But he said this one time, he said, at home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. I love that. I have felt, I don't feel that every Sunday and I'm the main preacher, right? But I do feel it at times and I know other people feel it some Sundays when I'm not feeling it. But when we gather together, there is something unique that happens. There is some bolstering of our hope. There's a, a call for us to grab back onto the gospel, to remember the truth that we believe together. And I felt this during COVID lockdowns. I don't remember, uh, I don't know what your experience of that was like, but those weeks where we were not able to physically gather together, I felt the void and the lack of that like I never had. Now that I greatly, greatly value being with you all. I, I love singing with you more than I even love preaching for you and to you because it's good for me. It is good for me to hear Pastor Rod read. It's good for me to hear Ashlyn read. It's good for me to hear Will and the team lead us and sing. It is good for me to see you all fellowship with each other after the service is over and be an encouragement to each other and pray for each other. That bolsters my faith. That bolsters my hope. And I, I, I missed that when we weren't able to gather. And so I don't want that lesson we learned during COVID to be lost on us, but to value the gathering together and the stirring up that happens when we do. So we must be present with each other in the last thing I'm going to say is we, if we're going to stir each other up, we have to be perceptive of each other, right? That we have to be present, but we have to be perceptive of each other. We are not just like people who have like, I've got my Bible verse. I'm going to share it with somebody today. I'm going to, we're not like just some tool that has just got to find somebody to aim it at. We need to actually, he says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I appreciate that. He didn't say we need to stir each other up to love and good works. He said to consider how to do it. 
Like as Christians, God has given us, or as humans, God's given us a brain, right? And as Christians, God has given us the spirit and he's given us his word. And we need to use those things together. And when we see a brother or sister, actually think, how can I minister to them? Like what would be a timely fitting thing for them in this moment today? Like what do they need to remember? What do they need to hear? Do they need a hug? Do they need a scripture passage that comes to mind? Do they need to be called to repentance? Do they need to have a reminder of the cross? What do they need right now? Let us consider. And so we need to be attentive as Christians, perceptive of what's actually going on in a person's mind and heart. We, we should look for their tendencies as a person, right? Like learn their patterns. We should try to listen to their words. Don't just assume you know what's going on in their heart, but actually listen to what they're saying. Listen to what is going on in them. Try to discern their heart. We need to pray for the Spirit's help. Help me know how to minister to this person. If it's in the moment I, have a, I see them coming toward me, just Spirit, help me minister to them. Or if it's a meeting I have, pray in advance of that. Help me know what to say. Help me know what not to say. What's gonna stir them up to love and good works? But we need to be students of each other. Right, to actually know what is going on in each other's lives. And you can't do that just by one-off visits with people. Like you do it by being around them again and again and again and knowing what is going on in their lives. I love at the beginning of this text, he called them brothers. Like that we actually are family as Christians. And we as, as siblings, we know how to push each other's buttons as siblings, right? Because we know how they work and we know what they think. And we can use that knowledge to harm them and stir up something other than love and good works. Or we can use it to actually serve them. Right To actually say, I know, I think I can see what's going on here. I know this pattern of thought. I've seen it before in you. I know this temptation. I want to share this with you. Like, actually be perceptive of how our brothers and sisters are doing. So just as a practical word of application, when you come together on Sundays, when we come together on Sundays, I want us to come together with antenna up of who can I serve this morning and how can I serve them. Not just come, what am I going to get out of this? What, what am, how am I going to gain? But have, be on the lookout for people who need encouragement, to encourage one another. Be on the lookout for that. Be prayerful for that. And seek to seize opportunity to actually do that, to actually ask questions of them, to actually speak to them. It thrills my heart on Sunday mornings after, we, after I say the benediction to see many of you not just make a beeline out of the door, but actually turn and look to see, who is new here? Who seems discouraged here? Who seems uh, downcast here? And to try to be an encouragement to them, to be a, a touch point for them, and to be a, a worker of the Holy Spirit in their life. And I, want, I would love for us to do that more and more, to come ready, antenna up, who can I serve? Who can I encourage today as we gather? Who can I help stir up? And by God's grace, he's going to have other people who are doing the same for you, right? Who are looking and seeing a day you need stirred up and say, brother, what is going on? Like, how can I pray for your sister? You seem discouraged. Like, what's going on in your heart? Let me uh, listen and seek to be an encouragement to you. So let's stir each other up to love and good works. And last thing, actual last thing I want to say. I appreciate how this text ends. He says uh, that we are to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love that. Our responsibility toward each other uh, does not diminish over time, it grows over time. Like it intensifies over time. I think sometimes we think that the more mature I am as a Christian, the less I need other Christians. And the exact opposite is true. 
Like he, he's saying as time goes on, as that day, which I think he's referring to the return of Jesus, as that day gets closer and closer, we're one Sunday closer to it today than we were last Sunday, right? As it gets closer and closer, we do not need each other less, we need each other more, right? And as we mature in our faith, we don't need each other less, we need each other more. When that day comes, Jesus himself taught that that day is not going to be preceded by bliss and ease and comfort, that that day of the return of Christ is going to be, uh, it's going to be preceded by trial. It's going to be preceded by temptation. It's going to be preceded by hardship. And all of life is filled with that, right? Uh, whether that day is next year or it's a millennium for now. Uh, as we draw further on in life, as we draw closer and closer to the return of Christ, we need each other more, not less. We need stirred up more. Jesus said that the pathway to life is narrow and hard, not wide and easy, right? And if it's narrow and hard, this pathway toward the kingdom, then we need each other in our lives uh, to be reminding us of truth, calling us to draw near again, calling us to hold fast to the confession of hope, stirring us back up to love and good works. And someday, when that day does come, Jesus is going to raise the dead He's going to judge the living and the dead. And then his eternal kingdom is going to be established, right? Where his people, those who've drawn near by faith, are going to get to be part of this new earth that lasts for eternity, where we will get to worship God again and again and again and again ongoingly without distraction. That day is drawing near. And what we get to do Sunday by Sunday is just like a foretaste of that. There's one author I read who said, like what we do on Sundays is like a echo from the future. I love that. Like that when we sing, it's like a, a vision, a picture of what's going on in heaven now and what will be going on in the new earth for all eternity. What a privilege that we get to be part of that, right? And that we get to do it together. So as that day draws near to us, may we draw near to God. And as we do, may we draw near to God together. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to sing a closing song, and then I'll leave you with the word.